For those who do not know me, my name is Tom Sylvia, the associate pastor here. Uh, you just saw Pastor John Toon, who is usually the one up here preaching for us. Uh, but today you have me. And I'm just going to tell you, I haven't seen most of you since last year. And <laughs> this has been the first time you've come to church all year. So we need to fix that. We need to fix that, okay? Oh, man. John did the announcements. I had so many of those at the ready. Oh, I love it when the new year comes around and make those jokes. Um, but welcome to East Shore Baptist Church. One of the things we practice here is expositional preaching where we go thought by thought through a book of the Bible. If you've been with us for any length of time, we're in the book of Mark right now. But as of right now, we're going to pause on that and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 today. John will continue through the book of Mark once it pick that up again next week. So I want to ask you guys to go to the book of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, then there should be one in front of you and you can use it. We'll be on page 1159 in that Bible. So feel free to use it and keep it. That is our Christmas present to you. And with that, what we're going to do, we're going to cover the whole chapter. And I said, what are we going to do for the first, uh, first sermon of the year? And I was, as I was thinking on this, and I said, we might as well start the year off since we're worshiping on the first day of the year with a reminder of what we believe and then what we are going to commit to doing this year as we have done every year. So with that, with per our tradition here, if you are able, I'm going to ask that you stand as we read God's word. I'm going to read the entire chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one. And if you don't have a Bible, they'll be on the screen behind me. Here we go. Ephesians chapter one, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 6, and to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we get to just experience your word every week. We get to just read the treasures of your gospel all interwoven throughout your scriptures, and it breathes life into us. And Father, as this is the first day of the year, as we have come together to worship you, Lord, be with me. Help me in my words proclaim to all of us the gospel, our belief, who you are and how you are working for your glory, and we get to be a part of it. Lord, may we all leave here encouraged by the words you've just given to your children. Prepare our hearts, prepare our minds for your glory and your love. In your son's name we pray, amen. There's, so there's so much in the first chapter of Ephesians, I'm clearly not going to be able to do it justice, so we're going to use this first chapter more as our guide to remind us of our faith. If you look at verse 15, this verse kind of creates a transition between verses 1 through 14 and verses 16 through 23. There are two characteristics that Paul mentions of the Ephesian church. Um, first is their faith in the Lord Jesus, and second is their love toward all of the saints. Verse 1 through 14 speaks to the object of their faith, the triune God and his grand plan of redemption. And then verses 16 through 23 speaks to the reason why they love one another. And that is that we have been, they have been born again. And they are being made into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And in a very short time, they will all be just like we will be glorified in the presence of God for all eternity. And with those two characteristics, they will be our main points this morning. If you notice on your sheet, you will see that I've used the words, our faith and our love, or I'm sorry, our faith and our prayer rather than faith and love. Because as we'll see, whenever we get to the point of our prayer, love can take on many different forms and many different shapes. So with that, let's begin with our faith, a reminder of our faith. So to start this point, we need to begin with a definition of faith. And there's perhaps no better place to go than Hebrews 11, verse 1. Hebrews 11, 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And notice that this definition of faith is grounded in a promise. Or as the verse states, things. What are these things? Because 
he is my favorite theologian, allow me to quote from John Owen's commentary on Hebrews as to what these things are. John Owen says, these things hoped for in general are things good, promised, future, expected on unfailing grounds. The things therefore here intended as hoped for are all the things that are divinely promised to them that believe. All things of present grace and future glory. As he says in this definition, the things are the divine promises that are beyond certain. In fact, these promises are so certain we have a better chance of a goldfish drinking the oceans dry than for any one of these promises to fail. And what are these promises now? Well, that's what we have in Ephesians chapter 1. In this chapter, Paul lists the prom- one of the many promises, but it's the promise of our salvation. And not only that, is it a, the promise of our salvation, but Paul is actually pulling the curtain back so that we get a glimpse into how the triune God works out this grand plan of redemption. And we get a glimpse that this salvation we have been given is one day going to lead towards our glorification. What is glorification? Well, that is the belief, the doctrine, our understanding that we proclaim that our bodies will be resurrected, made new, fully pure, holy, blameless, sinless, redeemed, righteous, without blemish for all eternity. No more aches, no more knee pain, no more struggles with lust or envy, no more tears, no more anguish, misery or hatred, no more of our hearts battling sin. That is glorification. Worshiping our Lord for all eternity. That is what we get to expect and look forward to with certainty. It's guaranteed because the fullness of the triune God Himself worked to assure it. This is our faith. And our faith is rooted in a loving God that has given all of Himself to us. This is not a half-hearted promise. This has been a promise that has been conceived, if I can use that word, with an infinite wisdom and an immeasurable expanse of knowledge. A promise that is driven by a gracious, merciful, slow to anger, omnibenevolent God with an eternal, never-beginning, never-ending love directed towards us. It is a promise that has been executed by a divine omnipotence with an outstretched arm bringing forth the mighty hand of the living God, holding both the almighty scepter that will bring about perfect justice as well as the shepherd's hook that will guide his children into eternal glory. This is the gospel that we believe. And it's a good gospel. So let's look. Let's look how each of the persons of the triune Godhead work to secure our salvation so we can further exalt our God. And God always works in the same pattern. The Father initiates through the Son and the Holy Spirit completes. Let me quote Scott Scott Swain. All all God's works with respect to creatures, that's us, we're creatures, We we are creatures of God. All God's works with respect to creatures are common to all three persons of the Trinity. All of God's works with respect to creatures, once again it's us, follow a Trinitarian shape, proceeding from the Father, 
through the Son in the Spirit. And we have that very formula present here in Ephesians chapter 1. So we're going to look at all three persons of the Godhead, beginning with the Father. So let's look at the Father's role in our redemption. What has the Father done for us? Well, first we will begin, it was His will. His will. He willed for our redemption. Verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. What for? Why did He choose us? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. This plan of redemption is not an afterthought in the triune conversation. It wasn't where the Father was speaking with Jesus and He's like, hey, let's create man. They're going to mess up. Hmm, that's a good point. We need to figure something else out here. Let's figure out how to make them holy and blameless. No, that wasn't how the conversation went. It was the Father's intention from the beginning to give us glorified bodies through the blood of His Son. This means prior to creation and the creation of time itself, God has at every moment in time and outside of time been directing the fullness of His affections towards us, His church. He has been directing the course of history toward the fulfillment of this plan by ushering in all of His sheep, the church, into His fold. It has been His plan all of eternity to prepare a bride for His Son and to present this bride before His Son without blemish and complete. That is His will. What else did He do? Well, second, He gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. So in systematic theology, which is the study, the, the, the study of God Himself, is called theology proper. In theology proper, we... we put his attributes into two categories, incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. Incommunicable attributes are the attributes that we know of God, but he does not share them with us. So for example, God is not made up of parts. Don't think of God as like a pie with many slices. God simply is. He is one. This is called divine simplicity. But unlike that, we have parts. We have eyes, ears, nose, there's multiple things to us. We don't, we don't share in divine simplicity with God. Thus, it is incommunicable. And there are others. And then the, the attributes where we do share with God are called the communicable attributes. And with these, so for example, God is able to love. God is love. And guess what? We can love. God is merciful. We show mercy. God is kind. We are, can be kind. God communicates. We communicate. We share in these with Him. Thus, they're the communicable attributes. And one of those communicable attributes is God's goodness. And nestled under God's goodness is His mercy, His patience, His grace, and His love. Depending on how God's goodness is directed towards the creature, that that is us, depends on which word we would use. Grace, love, patience, or mercy. And so now let me give you a definition of God's love by the Dutch theologian Hermann Bavink. The goodness of God appears as love when it not only conveys certain benefits, but God Himself. 
This love of God stands out much more vividly in the New Testament now that God has given himself in the son of his love. God is love. How is God love? The answer is simple, because he gives himself to us. And he did this by giving us his son. How do we love one another? Oh, that is simple. We die to ourselves and give ourselves to one another. We give the fullness of who we are, for that is love. Third, what else did he do? His blessings. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Because the Father has given us the greatest of all possible gifts, His Son, Jesus Christ, what then logically follows is that we are the recipients of every divine blessing. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The word every in Greek means all or everything in English. The Father is not holding anything back. He has already given us His eternal, infinite, and blessed Son. How much more shall we get the benefits? What a powerful gospel we proclaim. For the Father has granted to us that we will have eternal life, eternal fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. Eternal joy, eternal blessed innocence, without corruption or the possibility of corruption. We will be fully in the image of His Son, worshiping Him for all eternity, ever growing in His presence and love towards Him and one another. An increase that will have no end. We have been raised with Christ, given the mind of Christ, and are secured in Christ. We are the praise of His glorious grace, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We are the people of God where God dwells in our midst. When those pearly gates open before our eyes, there will be scores of love and peace and wonder that will consume each and every one of us. And the heavenly host will be cheering and celebrating your arrival. And the greatest of all possible beings, Jesus Christ Himself, the Lamb of God, will extend His hand and escort you to the Father. Every spiritual blessing. Here is some application. Rejoice always, because those are wonderful gifts. Fourth, the Father, His adoption. He adopted us. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, there are some in this room who do not know what it is like to experience a loving mother or father. They may have passed away before your memories could form, or perhaps you have a mom or dad that you never see because of some poor life choices that were made, or perhaps you know, your you know your parents, but the word loving would be one of the last words you would use to describe them. And unfortunately, sin plagues the family inst institution and has marred many of our realities when it comes to what a family is supposed to be. However, in, the, in, in at least most of our minds, an ideal family picture exists. We have a picture of how we think things in a family should be, how a family should express love and how should, they should laugh and create memories together. And in that ideal, we hold out a glimmer of hope that that thought is possible and that maybe one day we'll get to live it. 
And why do we allow our imaginations to create such imagery about the family? Well, this exists because God is first and foremost Father. When Jesus came to reveal God to us, He did not reveal God to us as creator, judge, or even an omnibenevolent God, but He introduced us to Him as first and foremost Father. That was His introduction to God. It's a familiar term that is meant to stir up our affections. God is the pinnacle of fatherhood, the greatest father, and he will bestow upon all of his children the greatest love of which will only ever grow and grow and grow and grow for all eternity. He extends his fatherliness to us who were abandoned and stuck in our sins. We were all like a helpless babe left out to die. No one to hold, feed, or clothe us. The world rejected us and passed us on by. Not so with our Father. He said, mine. And now, we don't don't have the joy of praying to God. We have the joy of praying to our Father. And these are just a few ways that God has worked in the plan of redemption, but We don't have time, and we're going to be brief with these, so we're going to transition now to the Son. Let's see the Son's role in our redemption and our faith. First, before we can really go on to any, this one must come first, and that is His incarnation. He came to us. The Father willed for us to be redeemed, and the Son, without hesitation, said, I will go. Send me. The Son understood and saw the glory of the Father's grand plan of redemption, and with great anticipation, the Son said, Here I am. I will give myself. He knew that He would have to take on the form of man and would be humiliated, mocked, and beaten by man. He knew that He who never sinned nor will ever sin had to take on the sins of man, yours and my sins, that heavy burden, and He did it alone. For the joy that was set before the Father sent His wrath on the Son. And the joy set before the Son willingly took the wrath of God so that we may embrace the love of the Father. He came to us as a baby born in a manger of which we just celebrated. And He is coming again, this time in the form of a king. He came, Emmanuel. What did he else did he do? He gave his blood, the atonement. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That is the blood of Christ. There is perhaps nothing more precious to us in our faith than the blood of Christ. If it were not for the blood of Christ, we would all be dead, we would be hopeless and estranged for all eternity. Our faith would be useless and pitiful. Fortunately, that is not the case because Christ gave it all. He bled for you and for me. We who are in Christ have been bathed in the blood of Christ and have been washed as white as snow. Our works could not save us. Our friends cannot save us our sacrifices cannot save us not even our faith can save us it is only through the blood of christ that we are saved by means of our faith it is the blood of christ that saves 
Charles Spurgeon, turn your eye not upon faith, but upon Jesus. It is not your your hold of Christ that saves you. It is his hold of you. Not the efficacy of your believing in him. It is the efficacy of his blood applied to you through the spirit. There are no evils in this world, whether it be our sin or Satan that can overcome the blood of Christ, which was poured out for you. You cannot out the blood. What a joy. And we, the bride of Christ, we are at peace because here in the house of God, his church, the doorposts are not painted, but they are covered with the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. The third is the revelation. That is, Jesus has made known the will of the Father. The word revelation we often associate with end times, which, which we should, but it simply means the unveiling. That is, revealing something that was not previously known. And so what did we not know before and now do because of Christ? Verse 9, making known, Christ is making known to us the mystery of the Father's will. Well, why do we know that God has been pursuing the culmination of the bride of Christ for all eternity? How can I stand before you today and tell you with absolute confidence that God the Father has had you at the forefront of his mind for all eternity? Because his son Jesus Christ has revealed it to us. Not only with his words, but with his deeds. Jesus did not come on his own accord, but he was sent by the Father. He has come to do the will of the Father. John 5.30 I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, the Father. Jesus has come to do the works of the Father. John 10, 37-39 If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Jesus has come to speak the words of the Father. John 17, 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Why are we able to place such great confidence in the gospel? Why do we not have to worry about any gimmicks or special performances to bring people to the church or to the gospel? Because we rely fully on the proclaiming power of the gospel to do all the work. Because the Son has revealed to us His Father's will, and His will is for the salvation of all His sheep. John 6, 39. And this is the will, the Father's will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. Well, how are they going to come to Him? John 6, 45. As it is written in the prophets, and they, the sheep, will all be taught by God the Father. That is the gospel. The Father has made it known that He wants His sheep rescued. 
and it is to be accomplished by his son, Jesus Christ. This gospel message is what he wants us to make known to them, to the world, to the sheep. When we proclaim the gospel, it is not our words or our, or our ideas we are proclaiming, but it is Christ, the very words of the Father, the very power of God. The Father has willed it, the Son has revealed it, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will proclaim it. Fourth, Jesus is making all things new, a new creation. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Since the very days of old, our oldest grandparents, Adam and Eve, we have sinned. And we have brought a great curse over all the world. And since that time, we have wearied ourselves in manual labor and endured many pains of child labor. We have broken relationships. We have hurt others with our words. And most of us live with regrets because of our fallen sinfulness. Life is simply hard. And we're longing for something else. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorites by him. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We can breathe. Jesus is making all things new. As with the Father, we could keep going on with the Son, but we want, I want us to can now move on to see the Holy Spirit. Let us see the Holy Spirit's role in redemption. And first, He illuminated our eyes. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. If you are a believer in this room, then prior to your salvation, you had a hard, heavy heart. A heart that refused and hated the things of God. You wanted nothing to do with Him, and you were all, we were all, consumed and enslaved by our own sin. Yet a great grace was shown to us by the Holy Spirit. He opened our eyes to see the beauty of God. He gave us the mind and the ability to understand the hope to which He has called us to see and comprehend the things of the omnipotent God. We were blind, but now we see. Third, second, He has worked an immeasurable, pow immeasurable power in us in that He resurrected us, the first resurrection. Verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power, the Holy Spirit's power towards us who believes? Perhaps many of this room, people in this room have been asked the question, do you feel the presence of the Holy Spirit? Are you empowered by the Holy Spirit? If you are a Christian, then the answer is an emphatic yes and amen. Paul asked this, asked this question in the very same verse provides an answer to this immeasurable greatness. And what is that power at work in us who believe? It is the very same power that conquered the grave and brought Jesus, our King, up from the dead. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dry bones, withered grass, and waterless places. Life was an alien concept to us. But then an immeasurable power came upon us and breathed the breath of life. From death to life. That's a resurrection. The breath that brought all creation into being and the breath that brought Jesus out of the tomb as conqueror of death breathed life into you and me. And he said, live. Not only 
did this great power raise Jesus from the dead. God, the Holy Spirit, brought Jesus into the presence of the Father with authority and said, Jesus, sit down at the right hand of your Father and reign. With that same power, the Holy Spirit is going to usher each one of us into the courts of the Father. Never neglect nor undermine the goodness of the gift of your salvation because it is only the works of the Almighty who could give it. Your sin is too much for anything or anyone less than the might of God to do this for you. Third, He guarantees our eternal joy. Verse 14, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory? The gospel we proclaim is good news because we are sharing the story of the Son of God dying for our sins and then being eternally loved by a gracious Father. This is wonderful news because that means we can never lose the gift of our salvation. It does not matter how wicked the sin or how many times of the sin is committed, the Father's love is going nowhere. Now, do not hear me say that once you are saved, then you can go on living however you want to and that there are no consequences. I'm not saying that. The gospel is not a license to sin. Let me quote Wilhelmus Brockle. At once, at once, that is upon salvation, they perceive the abhorrent, hateful, and damnable nature of sin. So when, you're, when we're saved, we see our sin which bring forth a desire to pursue the grace of God. The gospel changes a person. It's a lifestyle change. Therefore, if your life hasn't changed, then there is a good chance you have not truly believed in the gospel. But more to my point is that we are sinners and we fail and mess up a lot. And yet the father never retracts his hands. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit is living within us. He has made His dwelling place in our hearts. And that it is no longer us who live, but it is Christ who lives in us. We are sealed. The implication of Paul's language is that we are kept hidden from outsiders. When the kings of old sent a letter to a far-off country to a designated person, they had to soften wax and they used their signet ring to press a seal upon the envelope so that the recipient would know it's from the king. And then they could also determine if anyone opened the letter during its delivery. Well, that is the seal Paul was referring to here. We are like a letter, securely hidden in an envelope, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Unlike wax that can be easily removed, nothing will be able to budge the seal of the Holy Spirit. God has hidden us from the world and the whole demonic realm. There is no chance to lose our salvation or our inheritance to eternal life because for that to happen, the culprit would have to be something more powerful than an infinite God, and it simply doesn't exist. This is our salvation. This is the gospel, the plan of redemption of the triune God that we worship. This is the essence or the substance of our faith. It is no vain or foolish faith, but one built upon the solid rock of Christ. That's what we proclaim. That's what we're going to live this year. Now, now that we kind of see and been reminded of our faith, let's look to end the sermon, the second point, the, 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 the Ephesians' love for one another. 
And as I mentioned, I've labeled this point our prayer because I want to leave us with just an exhortation for this year. And it is a way to love one another. I'm going to read from what we're going to learn from what Paul does, and that is he prays. I'm going to read two prayers of Paul in the letter of Ephesians. The first one is 16, where he just tells the Ephesians he's praying. Let me read it. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then we get the essence of the prayers in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches excuse me, of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend all the saints, with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length in the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays for his fellow brothers and sisters to grow in the knowledge of the gospel. The eternal will of God, the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, and the great inheritance and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, pray. We're going to commit this year to praying for one another. Commit yourself this year to learn the gospel more and more. Commit this year to growing in your faith. Don't let 2024 come around and you not be more mature then than you are at the start of 2023. Don't do that. Commit this year to spreading the gospel, to obeying and fulfilling the will of God, that there be many new converts through God's grace, through our work, and we can baptize many more than just four this year. There are many of us in here that already potentially have made these New Year commitments, and perhaps we're about to make new ones today. Well, I want us all to commit to one another. And most of the attempts when you make these resolutions, they, they fail. And if we commit, we will fail without the help of one another. We will fail in proclaiming the gospel, working and living and loving and nurturing the gospel if we do not pray for one another to grow in the gospel, to challenge each other in the gospel. When you became a member of East Shore Church, uh, we all signed a covenant. You should have received it. It was a promise to live out the command to love one another. And, and you, you should have received it when you walked in. And if you don't have it, it's still out there. But that covenant is what it means to be a member here. And to, to fulfill these promises to one another, they must be fueled with the strength of prayer or we will not succeed. We have to commit to praying for one another this year. I asked one theologian who happens to be praying right now why she prays for other members, and I, really, I got a really good response, Judy Schmolitz. Because we are commanded to, and it just brings us closer to God. Amen. Amen. The command is enough, but God, getting God is an extra reward. Pray for one another. Take advantage of the membership directory that we have and pray through a page a week. Get through it. Rely on Debbie's weekly prayer email. She gives it and she's faithful to that. She's looking at your Facebooks, 
writing out how we can be praying for you guys to keep us all involved in one another's lives. Read it, use it, pray for one another. And if you have a prayer, please let her know because we can then, as one church with one voice, strengthen you in the power of the Spirit through prayer. So our commitment to 2023 is what I would hope that you would just commit with me is to know the gospel, to love and cherish the gospel, and to pray for each and every one of us to grow in the gospel. Commit yourself to the service of God and let us work wonders through his power for him and his glory. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you, Lord, that it wasn't a half-hearted gospel, but Lord, it was you. You came, you died, you initiated, you secured us, you opened our lives, you gave us this faith by your grace and your grace alone that we cannot boast. There is zero that we can boast about because your gospel, this salvation is all of your grace. Lord, help us to grow in the understanding of our salvation. Help us to see how much you loved us so that our love for you will grow. And Lord, just give us a spirit of prayer and de greater dependence on you this year. Thank you, God. Thank you for giving us you. In your son's name we pray, amen.